Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. We started into a new book this morning, the book of John. And I love this book. It's been sweet to me as I've read in preparation, as the Lord has shown me so much through what John says to us. I'm excited to kind of dive into it. John, it really breaks into two halves. And in the first half, we in chapters 1 through 12, it's uh, classically known as the book of signs. God kind of shows us these seven signs that Jesus performs in John 1 through 12. And these are initiated to kind of uh, show us Jesus' Messiahship. And so that section then is broken into three sections as well. So chapters 2 through 4, uh, Jesus uh, shows us kind of his interactions in this area called Canaan and Jerusalem and back. And then in chapters 5 through 10, there's a bunch of festivals that he approaches, kind of a theme that's running there. And then in chapter 11 through 12, we're dealing almost entirely with the situation with Lazarus. And all of these are culminating to this uh, resurrection from the dead that God wants to invite us to consider the Messiah who is resurrection in life. But later on, if, if chapters 1 through 12 are kind of summarized by Jesus' rejection amongst his own, chapters 13 through 21 are summarized by his acceptance amongst his disciples. And so we second, the second half of chapters 13 through 21 are called the book of exaltation. And they start off with chapters 13 through 17 are Jesus' upper room discourse with his disciples where he's kind of saying, I'm going away, but the Spirit is coming. In chapters 18 through 21, we have the passion narrative of Jesus' death and resurrection and interactions after his resurrection. But John is, is showing us this for a specific purpose, and he tells us this purpose, and this is unique amongst uh, Bible books. He tells us this purpose in John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31, which is on the screen in front of us here this morning. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by, by believing, you may have life in his name. See, John wrote to foster belief in us, in his audience. In fact, the word believe, it's even going to show up in our text today. It's used throughout the book. It's, it's kind of central to one of John's themes. It's an invitation for us to place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And while the first half of our book in chapters 1 through 12 might describe the process of disbelief or unbelief, chapters 13 through 21 invite us to greater belief in the sonship of Jesus, the Messiahship of Jesus Christ. See, this morning, as we enter, enter, enter into John 1, John is introducing this gospel to us. And he's entering us into this concept of we become like our fathers. We emphasize our fathers. We, we become like them in so many ways. We show ourselves to be their progeny. We become like our parents. No matter how hard we fight it, we become like mom or dad, don't we? As a, we've been watching more football games in the fall, we've been invited into these uh, commercials that are showing up, the progressive commercials where people are turning into their parents and there's a, a counselor type who's kind of guiding them through all of that. You've seen these, right? 
There's the woman who has like 500 throw pillows on her couch and he just comes and knocks them off and says, now I can sit down, right? Or the father who's walking around the store and he hands off the shopping cart and hands it off to the employee and says, it, it pulls to the right a little bit and he waves off the person, right? See, sons become like their fathers. And every time my son is pointing out my gray hair to me, I said, well, fast forward 30 years, you're looking at yourself, buddy. Like, this is what you have to look forward to. See, if if you meet a son, you might be able to tell a great deal about their fathers. And if you meet a father, you might be able to predict a great deal about their sons, their mannerisms, their familiar phrases. All of these are destined to show up in their children's lives. So at some point, children in this room, someday you, your child will say to you, I'm hungry, and you'll be tempted to look back at them and say, hi, hungry, I'm dad. See, it still gets a laugh. I think it's great. See, and in this way, the world kind of keeps on turning, right? See, I wonder this morning if as a culture, as a world, we've lost our sense of spiritual fatherhood. We've lost that sense of of who created us and how we've kind of become like him. We were made in the Lord's image, and now we've kind of wandered away from it, such that the world is just lost. It grabs on to every kind of narrative that explains what's going on, whether it's philosophies or sciences or whatever else it might be. It grabs on to every little bit and piece so that it can kind of explain its existence. But this morning, we're invited in John chapter 1 to a different notion. See, Jesus models his Father in a redemptive way to us. Some of us here this morning don't have good relationships with our parents. We have a negative relationship with our Father. We have uh, only bad thoughts that come to us from our relationship with our mom or with our dad. But what Jesus models to us is a redemption to show us the Father. Jesus doesn't become like his Father, not by his genetic code, not because of growing up in the nurture of God. Jesus shows us his Father because he is of one nature with him. And at the end, when we believe in Jesus, what our text tells us today is that we also become children of God. See, here's our big idea this morning. Children of God trust the Son to reveal the Father. Children of God, they trust the Son. We trust upon Jesus because fundamentally He shows us who the Father is. That's our biggest problem. We've lost our connection with our heavenly Father. We've lost our spiritual parentage. He's going to show us this in three different phases, as it were. In chapter 1, verses 1 through 8, we're going to see that Jesus is God, and thus he's light to men. And verses 9 through 13, that all men must respond to this light. And then in verses 14 through 18, Jesus shows us grace and truth as he shows us the Father. I want to dive in this morning. We don't have a whole lot of time. We have a whole lot of text and a whole lot of thoughts to get through So I'm going to start in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not 
overcome it. I mean, John just gives us this tour de force of theology, of rich Christology here for us. He's explaining the person and nature of Jesus and how it relates to the Father in verses 1 and 2, and then how it relates to the creation in verses 3 through 5. And so when we dive into chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, we see that John tells us of Jesus' relationship to the Father. The first thing he tells us is the Word was preexistent. In the beginning was the Word, that Jesus was with God. He was there at the beginning. He's not a created thing. He's not contingent upon someone else. He is present from the beginning of time and beforehand. And that's not it. He also tells us that the Word was with God, or actually the language says that the Word was toward God. The the language here, as Carson notes, is that it actually shows us that there's an intimacy between Jesus and the Father, that Jesus was oriented toward the Father. It actually uses the preposition pros, and it's from the word prosopon, which means face. That Jesus knew the face of God for all eternity past, that he has an intimacy there with the Father, and he's with him from the beginning. That's not it, though, that the the Word was with God and the Word was God. Jesus was not only in the beginning and with God, He was Himself divine. He did not achieve divinity through His action. He didn't achieve divinity through His uh, sacrificial death and resurrection. Jesus always was and always will be God. He is on par with the Father and with the Spirit that there's nothing lacking in His nature. He is fully God. Anything less, as John is telling us, is simply nonsense. Jesus and the Father existed forever in this rich mutuality and togetherness. And he goes on to tell us not just how Jesus was or or how he related to the Father. He tells us how he related to his creation. In verse 3, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus created everything. Now notice he states it both positively and negatively. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Everything that exists came to its existence through the direct action of Jesus Christ. That Jesus was not only present at the day of creation, he was the creator. He was the one who shaped and formed everything. As Colossians said, everything was from him. That it passed through his fingers, as it were, on its way to existence. Verses 4 and 5, he turns a corner then, and he's saying how it relates to us that Jesus is life and light. Notice that John's grabbing these two parts of the creation work, and he's likening Jesus to these two summaries of of the days of creation. If you're familiar, you went to VBS at some point in your life, you learned the days of creation, right? And you've subsequently forgotten them. I have, okay? Maybe you don't want to listen to me now, but other way, anyway... Days one through four of creation really hinged on the creation of light, right? There's the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. The first day he creates light. The day four, it culminates to him creating the stars and the heavens. Day five, he turns to the creation of life. He makes animals and other things. 
See, Jesus is a summary of all that. He's life in that he created all life, and thus all life is sustained in him. This is exactly what John is going to say in his gospel in John chapter 5. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. In John eleven twenty five, 25, he's going to look at Mary. He's going to say, I am the resurrection and the life. In John 14, 6, that other verse we memorized, that VBS as a kid, I am the way and the truth and the life. John is tapping into this idea of Jesus as the one who's giving life away. But he's also the light in that all men are illumined by his life. And again, John is using this throughout this gospel. John chapter 12, I've come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. See, Jesus' existence on the earth was meant to, men, to bring men out of darkness and into the light or the knowledge of God. In fact, John tells us in verse 5 that uh, this light is victorious over darkness. Now, here we have this summary of, of Jesus, and then we need a messenger, right? We need someone who's going to come and speak these words. So look at verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John, and he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. See, John was sent from God to testify in fact, if we were to kind of flip back in our Bibles to Malachi chapter 3, Malachi 3 verse 1 says, Behold, I send my messenger. I send my messenger. John the Baptist is that one like Elijah. <clears throat> that one like Elijah who's sent before the Messiah, before the coming of Christ. But he comes for a specific purpose. Look at what he says in verse 7, that all might believe through him. See, John's purpose in his testifying was for the purpose of bringing about belief. And we have to recognize that this is the first usage of that term in the Gospel of John, believe. Our author isn't shy about this term. He's he's very open that we should come to a state of believing upon Jesus Christ. He makes no bones that he wants us to believe, just as he did what we saw in John chapter 20. He says it now. Even now, the testimony of John the Baptist is here for us to accept or deny, to, to believe what he says about Jesus or to reject what he says about Jesus Christ. Let's just take inventory of these verses for a second. Look at what John has told us. In verses 1 and 2, Jesus was himself God, but he was distinct from the Father. In verse 3, that he is the creator of everything. And then in verses 4 and 5, he relates to mankind as the victorious light of the world which brings life to men. See, if these three things are true, Jesus demands our full attention this morning. I I wonder if we haven't lost touch with this person, Jesus. I wonder if we haven't kind of moved on from what John has described to us. Too many modern-minded people like ourselves. uh, Jesus may seem like many things. He might seem like a a good teacher. He might seem like a very moral person. He might be a, a social dissident, a revolutionary of sorts. 
And if he's just a good person, we lump him in with the categories of, of Gandhi or Mother Teresa. And if he's just a good teacher, we lump him in with so many others. And if he's just a revolutionary, he's just another such and such and so and so. But whatever Jesus is, he was first what John has described here. Did Jesus teach well on the earth? Well, it might have something to do with his existence before the beginning of time. Did he contradict the powers that be? Did he live a life of a revolutionary? Did he upturn or overturn the, the social tables that existed in his day? He, he's been doing that for ages through the mouths of prophets. Did he perform miraculous signs? Did he do wondrous miracles that we'll even see later on in this book of John? Well, of course he did, but he did so because he's the one who suspends the creation's order itself at the word of his mouth. Now, in fact, the life of Jesus recorded in the book of John only makes sense if what John tells us to be here in chapter 1 is true. See, for decades, what's been happening is uh, people who have come to the Bible and studied it, like in scholarly kind of uh, very academic settings, they've been trying to explain what's been going on here. They've been trying to tell us about these miraculous things that Jesus has performed. Some have, have just simply explained them away, saying they're just stories. They're like folklore. It's like us talking about John Bunyan or somebody else in American history. John Bunyan is not a part of American history, just so we know, right? Others of us, we explain it away and say, well, he didn't really turn water into wine. It was something different. And they kind of take away the miracle part of the miracle. See, unless we start from this idea that John has for us here, that Jesus was preexistent, divine himself. These miraculous things that are recorded for us in this gospel will never make sense. C.S. Lewis has this great quote in his book, Mere Christianity. He says this, says, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying that that really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept him or his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is, he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. See, the claims are true. Either Jesus is this liar that he's making up false things about himself. He's a lunatic. He believes false things about himself. Or he is the Lord. Those are the three options that we have. That if Jesus is truly what he says to be or claims to be or John claims him to be, then we have to reckon with this person, Jesus. In fact, that's exactly where our text goes in the next section. In verses 9 through 13, John wants to invite us to this issue of response. And so all men must respond to this light. Look at verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. 
But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. See, Jesus came into the world. Again, light entered into the world. And this light was for everyone. Everyone had a decision to make. This is what verse 9 is telling us. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. It's initiating a decision. We cannot be indifferent about Jesus Christ. We either decide to obey and worship, or we decide to reject and live in opposition. And this is exactly where John goes in verses 10 through 13. He first describes those people that he came to. Sinful men rejected the light. Jesus came into a world which he did not know him. And we can sense the scandal in this, can't we? The creator returned to his creation unrecognized. Verse 11 says that he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Somehow this creator became foreign to those whom he, had made, uh, he himself had made. It's like we have this kind of spiritual dementia. Maybe you've known someone who's had dementia in their life or someone in your life who's had dementia. I've heard all too many stories of loved ones and others who come to talk to someone that they know that doesn't recognize them, whether it's a spouse or a child or a grandchild, that loved one no longer recognizes them. We received Jesus, but we didn't recognize his lordship. See, when Jesus returned to us, he was no more familiar to us than the heaven from which he came. And so this represents a serious problem for us, doesn't it? The creator who is life and light is no longer recognizable to us. Jesus is so foreign to us that we think him merely to be a good teacher or a revolutionary or whatever else. But I love what he says in verse 12, that but, that but is such an important interposition here, isn't it? It implies that there's a possibility of a different response. And so look at verse 12. He says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Those who receive him become children of God. Those who believe on Jesus' name are children of God. If we look at verse 12, we see that word again, that word believe. If It's only by belief on Jesus' name that we can have access to God as Father. Notice what he says, but to all who did receive him, who believed on his name. You know what that implies? It implies that there are some who do not believe and thereby are not children of God. Simple truth, isn't it, this morning? Just listen in sometimes when you hear the culture talk about how we're all God's children. And it becomes a a statement of universality that we all are, are becoming God's children. And unfortunately, that's not what our text says this morning. What John is telling us that a specific niche of people who through belief on the name of Jesus Christ have become children of God. Not all of us are children of God. All of us could be said that we're made in God's image. All of us could say that we are loved by God, but only a few of us can say we are children of God, that we have been atoned for by the blood of Jesus Christ. In fact, John tells us 
that God's children were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That is, that if you have faith this morning, if you are one who is a child of God through your faith in the name of Jesus Christ, you did nothing to accomplish it. It was not because of the, the, uh, the blood, the lineage that you came from. It wasn't because of your uh, will or your exertion, but it was of God. See, there's not out there some superior class of super saints, some people who just work and work and work to earn God's favor. There's not this group of people out there that just do everything right so that when God saw all of eternity down uh, through the ages that he picked those super saints to be on his team. There aren't those who are just more spiritually hunger than some, hungry than someone else. No, our status as God's children has to do with God's divine empowerment. So what we see in this section is that Jesus is either to be accepted or rejected. We quoted this early in our service that Jonah chapter 2, where Jonah is in the ocean. He's spit out of the mouth, or he's in the belly of the fish, and he cries out to God. And he says that salvation belongs to the Lord. We could almost put that as a summary of the entire statement of, of the Bible itself, that salvation is of God. He gave the right to become children of God. We were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God, because salvation belongs to our God. But it's also true this morning that you and I must believe. It's true that God sovereignly purposes salvation, that he makes us his children, but it's equally true that you and I must respond in faith. And that's the invitation of this very book, as we've already discussed. That's why John writes, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. It's not just a decision, or else it would be of the will of the flesh. The truth is that salvation is wrought by God such that you and I were enabled toward belief. It acts upon us like God's word upon Lazarus, like we'll see in John chapter 11, where Jesus stands before the grave of a dead man, and he calls out him specifically because if he didn't say just Lazarus's name, all of the dead would rise. He says, Lazarus, come forth. And the word of God calls Lazarus out of his death into new life. We were dead in our transgressions and sins, and God's powerful word came upon us and brought us out of our spiritual deadness to make us alive in Jesus Christ. James says it in James chapter 1, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of his truth, that God is calling forth his children by his words, most notably by his word, Jesus Christ. With this in mind, that we enter into this last section that Jesse read for us this morning. What is it specifically about Jesus that must be believed? Do we have to believe that he had long hair, that he had a British accent like so many movies have portrayed him in the past, right? 
What is it specifically about Jesus and his name that must be believed so that we might become children of God? You might have noticed this in our culture that there are so many with so many varieties of beliefs in Jesus. What's required of us? Verses 14 through 18 get us a little bit more to the point. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This is, was he of whom I said, He who comes before me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. John starts and he tells us that Jesus dwelt among us. And we might miss this in in this English kind of translation, but he's actually using the word tabernacled. That's a fun word to say, right? Tabernacled. It sounds like a very spiritual word to us, doesn't it? You might recognize it. It refers to the tent that the Israelites made in the book of Exodus where God's presence would kind of descend from heaven and it would rest there so that God's presence was there so that the Levites could come and make sacrifices on behalf of God's people. Uh, In the book of Exodus is recorded that the the people of Israel come and bring these materials to these two men, Bezalel and Aholiab, and they are empowered by the Holy Spirit to kind of create this tabernacle and they they form it and they make it. In fact, there were pages and pages of law to describe what, what life had to be like for God to be in their midst. There were things that were clean and unclean. There were safe and unsafe to be There are people to be around in God's presence. You could eat a fish, but not eat a pig. You had to shave the or not shave the corners of your beard. I can't remember which one it was, right? If you had a skin disease, that made you unclean. If you had mold in your house, that made you unclean. See, there was an entire system of sacrifices to be made for being unclean or being in sin. See, the point is that the first time God came to dwell in the midst of man, it came with this whole host of rules and regulations. It, it had to be, uh, you know, just preserved to the minutest detail. But as Jesus comes, he comes among us again. And what John tells us is that we have seen his glory. The first time when God dwelt among us in the tabernacle, in Exodus 19, it tells us that the Israelites trembled at the sight of God. And on top of Mount Sinai, there was a cloud and all kinds of bolts of lightning and everything else. And the Israelites trembled. And Luke or Leviticus chapter 9, when the presence of God breaks out from uh, the tabernacle and consumes the sacrifice that Aaron and his sons had set up, the people of God fall down on their face and they scream in terror. But now when Jesus comes, he shows us his glory. How? How does Jesus show us the glory of God? I think John chapter 2 invites us to this reflection and The verses on the screen here, John chapter 2, verse 11. We'll see this in a few weeks. He says, this, the first of his signs. That's the miracles that Jesus performed. The first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. 
and his disciples believed on him. So this is having to do with the structure of the book of John, that God, John is going to invite us to these miraculous signs that invite us to see the glory of Jesus Christ. Not thunder on a mountaintop. The gentle fingers of a Messiah laying his hand on a blind man. Or making spit and placing it on the eyes of an individual. See, Jesus showed us his glory in the very least by his signs. It's in these miraculous things that Jesus did uh, that we, we get a glimpse of who he was. So John describes this glory of Jesus. This glory was of the only begotten, of the monogenes. You say, did you just speak something weird, right? Monogenes, that's the Greek term for only begotten. You've heard it before in places like John chapter 3, verse 16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. See, Jesus showed us his glory as of the only begotten son. It was full of grace and truth. And in verse 15, we get invited back into John the Baptist's testimony here. And again, we have this record of John the Baptist's words, a direct quotation from him. In a society like this in the first century, what would happen is if you were born first, if you were older, excuse me, if you were older, you actually held more weight. You were supposed to be more honored and more cherished. And so John the Baptist, being older than Jesus, would have naturally incurred more honor from those that followed him. But what John is saying in John 15, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. John's saying, no, he deserves honor and praise. He pre-exists me. And so verse 15 is showing us that Jesus deserves more honor than John the Baptist because he came first. And this only son who tabernacled among us is worthy of all honor because he predates everyone and he created everyone. Verses 16 through 18 then summarize and it invites us to this grace and truth that we realize in Jesus Christ. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Actually, it probably should read grace instead of grace. The first grace that we received was the law, and that's what exactly is described in verse 17, for the law was given through Moses. That was a grace of God, that God showed us his character, that he invited us to consider who he was. That was a grace from God, but instead of that grace, he has revealed his mercy and kindness to us in Christ. We've received grace instead of grace. Jesus shows us grace and truth. Notice that this grace has to do with the revelation of the Father. Look at what verse 18 says. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. What does that mean? Jesus is the only God who is at the Father's side. The only begotten Son who is at the Father's bosom, as it would be translated. Later on in the book, you'll see that John lays against Jesus at the Last Supper. It's exactly the term that's used here. Jesus was so uniquely and intimately connected to the Father that he came from his side. He came from 
that sweet fellowship that he had with the Father before creation. And this is the God who's made him known. We're invited this morning to consider that God revealed himself in a certain way at creation. Isn't that what Psalm 19 invites us to? It says, uh, the heavens declare the glory of God. They proclaim the work of his hands. That creation tells us something about the might and majesty of God. We were invited to know God a little bit more when God revealed himself to Abraham. And we were invited again to know a little bit more when Moses gave us the law. And we were invited to know God more through the prophets. But God has pinnacled his revelation in the person of Jesus Christ. And the things that we saw before were power and law and justice and wrath. But when Jesus came, he showed us grace and truth so that we might become children of God. And if you didn't catch it this morning, there's a little bit of a hiccup in our text. There's a, a contradiction that might be there underneath the surface that we might have just kind of glossed over. Because what John tells us is that we, as many as believe in him, can become children of God. He says that, right, in verse 12. But then in verse 14, he goes on to tell us that God has one begotten Son, So God is a God with one son, but many children. That seems contradictory, doesn't it? You see, we're also, uh, John doesn't seem to offer any kind of resolution to this tension in the passage. He seems to just kind of let it lay there. And in fact, as far as I know, there's no resolution to this issue throughout the remainder of the book of John. But Paul does resolve the issue. And he does so through the doctrine of adoption. See, Galatians is is pretty clear in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. Paul says that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might what? We might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth uh, the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, how do we become children of God? It's through union with Jesus Christ that when we believe upon the Son, Jesus, that's when we receive our adoption as sons. It's how it can be true that God has one only begotten Son, but many children. See, Jesus' death gives us the promise of sonship so that when Jesus went to the cross, He paid the dues of our sin. When Jesus went to the cross, he bore our guilt. He gave us his righteousness so that you and I could have the confidence before the Father's presence to say that we are children of God. See, it's not just that Jesus has made God known or proclaimed God, as it were. It's that Jesus has made God our Father Maybe you've read Matthew chapter 6 and you come to that place where Jesus wants to teach us how to pray. And he starts off and he says, Our Father. If you're not careful, you can miss the scandal in that sentence. How is it that we, sinful, rebellious people who forgot God with our spiritual dementia, How is it that we came to a standing to call God our Father? 
only through the incarnation of his own son, through the sacrificial death on our behalf and the giving of his righteousness so that you and I who have faith in Jesus might become sons. That's the beauty of the gospel. The beauty is that you and I have all of the privileges of Jesus. Because of his sacrifice on our behalf. See, the truth this morning is that our sonship, our sonship in Christ is potentially the most precious truth that we possess. We can go through this text, which we've heard uh, dozens of times. We can walk through this passage, and we can just kind of gloss over it. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. He's tabernacled among us. We become children. As many believed on His name have the right to become children of God. And we can just kind of mull it over. But the truth this morning is this is one of God's most precious truths. And if you take it and you put it in your back pocket and you carry it along with you, it serves as an identity that allows you to engage this world with confidence and hope. It allows us this kind of raincoat that we put on ourselves that nothing in this world would affect us because we are made God's children in Christ. See, this is fundamentally a way of viewing the world. When you get up in the morning and you put your feet to the floor, you and I, if we are in Christ, if we've trusted in Jesus, if we've believed on the name, we can put our feet to the floor and say, I am fundamentally a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And I'm not trying to talk about psychological things. I'm not trying to give you a better uh, view of yourself or anything else. I'm just saying this is a spiritual reality in Christ. It's not therapeutic or psychological. This is the truth of what God tells us so that we can take it home, put it in our heart, and wear it as an identity in Christ. See, I love what John does in this passage. He lays out that if you're here this morning and you haven't trusted in Christ, the opportunity is still wide open for you to believe you also can become a child of God by belief in the name of Jesus Christ. You say, but how? How, how do we do that? You say, I, I trust wholly in the name of Jesus to save me from my sinfulness. I forsake all my other efforts to be a good person. I, I leave all those things, those other trusts behind, whether it's my, my job or my, my, my friendships or my relationships or whatever else. I'm only trusting that Jesus is what gives my life and my eternity meaning. Meaning, I should say. But John also speaks to the Christians in the room. He tells us that we have the confidence of being children of God and yet at the same time pushes us away from overconfidence by reminding us that it wasn't by our will or our desire. We are recipients of divine grace, children of God through faith in Jesus Christ. See, what we open this book in John, we recognize that this book is an invitation to that very word, belief. And for some of us, we've believed for years. From the time we were a child, from the time we were six years old until 
we're whatever age we are now. The truth is that God's inviting us to deeper and deeper realities of our belief. It's fascinating what happens later on in this book. You'll find that that word is believe is used of two different places in the same character. So in John chapter 4, we'll find a centurion or a Roman guard. He's there and he's asking for the healing of his son. And Jesus sends him away and says, your son's going to be well. And it says that he believed. But then later when he sees his son and he's cured and he asks what hour of the day it happens, he believed again. It's the same word that's used. Recognition, this happens throughout the book of John, that God is inviting us to deeper and deeper levels of belief, of trust and delight. If you're in Christ this morning, you should be challenged to believe more and more, to eradicate unbelief in your life in various places. And so we come to this book to define what true faith is and to invite existing believers into deeper faith. Is that you this morning? Is that you that you're invited to deeper realities of your faith? Or perhaps you don't know if you've ever had faith. If that's the case this morning, if you're saying, I don't know anything about this person, Jesus, I don't know anything about belief, I've just tried to be a good person, I would invite you to come and talk to me or come talk to one of our elders. Brian is here. He's the guy who corrected me on the announcement earlier. If you're here this morning, though, and you're a believer in Jesus, let's have the humility to recognize that our status as children of God didn't come about from our will. It didn't come about from our desire. It came about from a God who pursued us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you've pursued us in Christ. That you didn't leave us in our sinful state, in our spiritual dementia. Father, you came and made yourself known through your Son, Jesus Christ. So, Lord, we ask now that you would shape and form those who trust in you. And if there's anyone here this morning that you might be inviting to trust you for the first time, that you would allow that, that you would invite them to trust, that you would empower them, as your text says here this morning, to become children of God. For those of us who have faith and trust in you, Lord, allow us to put on that identity as your children to see the world that you've made through the redemption that you've given in Christ. Allow us not to live for our own desires, for our own wants, but instead allow us to, as your children, live for our Father's desire and design. And in all these things, we ask that you would glorify your name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.